0: The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Disappearance of Miss Hobart In the way of a Miss Marple's novel, when Miss Hobart vanished without trace during a journey between Launceston and Melbourne in Australia, It was a mystery that needed solving. Sadly, unlike the stories of amateur detectives that Agatha Christie wrote about, the whereabouts of Miss Hobart was a conundrum that would never be answered. Miss Hobart's last message had been, Over Redondo Island, all's well. The year was 1934, and along with Miss Hobart's disappearance, another 12 people passed into oblivion as well. Two were Miss Hobart's crew, Mr Gilbert Jenkins and Captain VC Holyman of Holyman Airways, for Miss Hobart was a de Havilland 86. The DH 86 was also known as the de Havilland Express, a four-engine biplane developed from the successful de Havilland Dragon and used extensively on routes around Australia and other parts of the British Empire. What was remarkable about the disappearance of this particular aircraft into the Bass Straits, between the island of Tasmania and the mainland of southern Australia, wasn't so much the crash, but one of the passengers who was lost and the effect that it would have on the entire aviation industry. The passenger in question had no connection with aviation at all, other than he was flying in Miss Hobart. He was an Anglican missionary, the Reverend Hubert Warren. He was travelling to Sydney to take up his post in a new parish. He left behind a wife and four children, one of whom was his eight-year-old son, David. The parting gift to David from his father had been a crystal radio set, which the boy treasured deeply. After tinkering with this clever little device, David learned how it worked, and within a few years, was making and selling copies to boys at his school for five shillings each. This last gift from his father had launched a love affair with science that would change his life and the world of commercial flying and save countless lives. In his 20s, David Warren graduated from Sydney University with a science degree, a diploma from Melbourne University, and a PhD in chemistry from Imperial College, London. And he became a lecturer in chemistry at the University of Sydney. However, David had a growing fascination in the burgeoning subject of rocket science, and before long he was posted to the Woomera rocket range as a scientific officer. This led to him being taken on by the Aeronautical Research Labs, part of the Australian Defence Department, where he rose to the post of Principal Research Scientist. He had a brilliant and inquiring mind, no doubt, but how was this going to be turned in the direction of air safety? You will, I hope, recall no highway in the sky, The tale I told of the troubled beginnings of civil jet transport, when the very first jet-powered airliners, de Havilland Comets, began to fall from the sky. In 1953, David Warren was loaned to the expert panel of investigators who were trying to piece together the cause of the comet losses. As a researcher for the fuels that these new jet turbines needed, it was David's job to investigate the likelihood of fuel being a factor in the crashes and to calculate the effects of fuel tank explosions. When debris from a crashed comet was finally recovered, David's research showed that the fuel on board the comet did not explain the damage that the aircraft had received and that the cause lay elsewhere. However, his exposure to the investigation led him to conclude that the biggest problem the team had in solving the answer was the lack of data. He went back to his lab and wrote a very short technical memo on the need to record data in aircraft that would aid crash investigation, entitled A Device for Assisting Investigation into Aircraft Accidents. David Warren wasn't the first to come to his conclusion. Back in the late 30s, François Hussonot and Paul Baudin had created a Type HB flight recorder from scrolling photographic film, which used a ray of light deflected by a mirror to record data. This style of recorder was still in use by the French flight test centres well into the 1970s. It was a single-use device— Once the film was exposed, it couldn't be reused, which prevented its popular adoption. During World War II, Len Harrison and Vic Husband, who worked at Farnborough in the UK, had developed a recorder that used styli, linked to various instruments and control services, which left indentations on a roll of soft copper foil. Also in 1942, the Finns devised a recorder that was used at its main aircraft factory in Tampere during test flights of their fighters, and both British and American forces had experimented with intercom voice recorders which used magnetic wire. These recordings allowed the voices of those brave air crews to be played to the public over the radio but despite these early efforts, nobody had come up with a complete answer to the problem of how to record flight and voice data for the growing commercial aviation market. As Warren started looking into ways to solve the dilemmas presented to accident investigators, Professor Crash Ryan of the University of Minnesota was filing a patent for a coding apparatus for flight recorders and the like. His original device, called the General Mills Flight Recorder, kept a record of flight conditions by recording changes in velocity, altitude and gravitational forces on a strip of aluminium foil, in a similar way to that of the British device, and Ryan is credited with producing the first crash-resistant data recorder. Back at the Comet Accident Investigation, David Warren knew that, in order to get a complete picture of what might have caused an aircraft crash, as much data as possible should be recorded, including the sounds that occurred within the cockpit. It was earlier, in 1953, whilst he was attending a trade show, that he had caught sight of a German-made miniature voice recorder, that was being offered to businessmen to dictate memos. David had acquired a device so that he could use it to record swing and jazz and make bootleg copies of his favourite musician, Woody Herman. He recalled thinking that if a businessman had been using one of these in a plane and we could find it in the wreckage and we played it back, we'd say, we know what caused this. Any sounds that were relevant to what was going on would be recorded. The chances that a recorder had been on board, of course, and survived the fiery wreck were basically nil, but what if every plane in the sky had a mini-recorder in the cockpit? If it was tough enough, accident investigators would never be in this confusion again because they'd have the audio right up to the moment of the crash, at the very least, They'd know what the pilots had said and heard. The idea fascinated him, so when he got back to the aeronautical research labs, he rushed to tell his boss about it. Sadly, his superior didn't share his enthusiasm, and he was firmly told, ''Dr. Warren, it's nothing to do with chemistry or fuels. You're a chemist. Give that to the instrument group and get on with blowing up fuel tanks.'' David knew his idea for a copy recorder was a good one, but without official support there was little he could do about it, even though the idea continued to niggle at him like an itch that couldn't be scratched. When his boss was promoted, David pitched his idea to his new superior, who was more receptive. He was urged to keep working on it, but discreetly. Since it wasn't a government-approved venture, it couldn't be seen to take up lab time or money. He was warned, "'If I find you talking to anyone, including me, about this matter, I'll have to sack you,' a sobering thought for a young man with a wife and two children to support. However, behind the scenes he was given subtle approval, and a new dictation recorder was quietly acquired.' as an instrument required for the laboratory. When the idea of a cockpit voice recorder was released to the aviation industry, the pilots of the day responded with fury. The Australian Pilots' Union branded the idea of a recorder as a snooping device and insisted that no plane would take off in Australia with Big Brother listening. Even the authorities seemed blinded to the potential of the device. Australia's civil aviation authorities declared that it had no immediate significance, and the Royal Australian Air Force feared it would yield more expletives than explanations. Around the world, pilots complained that it would be an unnecessary intrusion into their working environment, and that it could be misused by the management of unscrupulous companies to victimise pilots based on private conversations on the flight deck. The bigger picture was that it would be an invaluable tool in analysing accidents and could only add to flight safety. Compromises would have to be reached which would allow pilots to erase a recording once a flight had been conducted safely, a function that has, on occasions, sadly been misused. The negative impact of his proposed recorder dismayed David, and he was tempted to pack it all in. But he had a stubborn streak, and in the same garage where he had built and sold little crystal sets, he continued with his development of a functioning prototype. When the first little flight recorder was being finished off in the lab, a visitor from England happened to be getting a tour of the facility, and Dr Warren was asked to explain his world-first prototype. It used magnetic steel wire to store four hours of pilots' voices plus instrument readings, and it automatically erased older records so it was reusable. "'I say,' said the visitor, "'that's a damn good idea.' "'Put that lad on the next courier, and we'll show it in London.' So it was that David rapidly found himself on a Hastings transport aircraft making a run to England. You had to know someone pretty powerful to get a seat on it, and David wondered who this man was who was giving away round-the-world tickets to someone he'd never met. The answer was Robert Hardingham, the secretary of the British Air Registration Board and a former Air Vice-Marshal in the Royal Air Force. In a near-unbelievable irony, the plane David was on lost an engine over the Mediterranean, but when the crew said to the passengers, "'Chaps, we seem to have lost a donk. Does anyone want to go back?' There was a unanimous vote to continue." However, David recorded the rest of the flight, thinking that, even if he died in that limping transport plane, at least I'd have proved the bastards wrong. In England, David presented the ARL Flight Memory Unit to the Royal Aeronautical Establishment and some commercial instrument makers. The BBC ran TV and radio programmes examining it, and the British Civil Aviation Authority immediately started work to make the device mandatory on all civil aircraft. A Middlesex firm, S. Davil and Sons, approached ARL about the production rights and kicked off manufacturing. Although the device was protected by a strong orange-coloured casing, the common wartime term, black box, for any electronic device, was coined by a reporter, and it stuck. Flight data recorders quickly became a requirement for British commercial aircraft, but there was still strong opposition to the cockpit voice recorder element of this device. Australia became the first country to require the use of cockpit voice recorders after the unexplained 1960 crash of Trans-Australian Airlines Flight 538, a Fokker F-27 that hit the sea off Townsville during an approach after waiting for fog to clear. The Board of Inquiry could not determine the cause of the crash, but one of their strong recommendations was that the carriage of recorders be mandatory on civil transport aircraft, a trend that was eventually taken up by other countries. Since then, although refined and upgraded, voice plus data recordings have become mandatory in all major aircraft throughout the world. It has proved invaluable in helping to solve many air disasters since. Today's recorders are considerably more sophisticated than David Warren's original design and have added features such as internal power so they can continue to operate for a while if the aircraft power is removed, solid-state memory and digital recordings which are highly resistant to the shock of a crash. They can withstand high-impact speeds that will cause up to 3,400 Gs and a temperature of over 1,000 degrees centigrade, 1,830 degrees Fahrenheit. The case therein can also survive crushing low temperatures, penetration, deep-sea pressure and immersion in seawater or other fluids. In addition, they're fitted with an underwater acoustic transponder which will transmit its location. They are required to be coloured bright yellow or orange with reflective surfaces and all are lettered Flight Recorder Do Not Open on one side in English and the same in French on the other to prevent inquiring minds from accidentally destroying the data. In the future, it is possible that self-ejecting recorders that can be easily found and recovered will be required, and it is possible that flight data will also be continuously transmitted live via satellite links. The NTSB has also asked for the installation of cockpit image recorders in large transport aircraft to provide information that would supplement existing data recorders. Whatever the future, Dr. David Warren's invention has helped to solve many aviation disasters and has contributed enormously towards aviation safety. For more than 50 years, Dr. David Warren's pioneering work on the black box went almost unacknowledged. Finally, in 2001, he received the Royal Aeronautical Society's Lawrence Hargrave Award and he became an officer of the Order of Australia in 2002 for his service to the aviation industry. He never saw a penny in royalties from his invention, and asked if he felt hard done by. His standard response was, Yes, the government got the results of what I did, but then they also didn't charge me for the other hundred ideas that didn't work. He passed away in 2010, aged 85, and was buried in a casket, upon which there is a notice, surrounded by a large orange square. It reads, Flight Recorder Inventor, do not open. Hey, stop what you're doing and listen. Pop over immediately to Apple Podcasts because if you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review. My enormous thanks to Chris Postel, whose ideas led to this story. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the fabulous Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com